So I trust you've all found uh, Luke 13 in your scriptures. Why don't we stand and read as a congregation? Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. They began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we look forward to our time together. And um, this parable, like all your parables, has a spiritual truth to be revealed. I pray, God, that uh, this becomes clear to me and clear to the church as we unfold uh, this passage the way you originally intended it. And so this is not possible without uh, your Spirit's guidance. And we ask you now for, for him to, uh, to be the source of truth moving forward, not only in the time of the sermon, but in the dialogue as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Well, good morning and welcome back to our sermon series in the parables. Just a reminder to you of why we started the parables in the first place. Um, when Graham and Serena were here, he, he mentioned something in the sermon that struck me. He said, you know, the Christian life is marked by sort of two things. One, we had us, sorry, Christ identifying with us which is what he did uh, on the cross and uh, by coming to earth and we just celebrate that in the communion but also about our identification with him and as I began to think about that I thought what a great opportunity to do a sermon series on identifying with the Lord and uh, there's obviously different ways in which we can do that and I thought that parables would be an awesome opportunity because within every parable Jesus uh, his heart and mind was revealed to us in terms of the spiritual truths that were important to him. He taught 39 parables that are recorded in Scripture. I'm sure he taught more than that, but 39 are recorded in Scripture. So he has 39 spiritual truths he wants us to know. And I think that's important for us to, to do in order, in order to capture the heart and mind of Christ. Now remember the purpose of parables. They're fictional stories designed to communicate spiritual truth by way of comparison. They're, spirit, they're fictional stories designed to communicate spiritual truth by way of comparison. So our task then is very easy in one sense, but hard in another. See, if we get the comparison right, we get the parable right. If we get the comparison wrong, we get the parable wrong. And so we talked a lot about that last week with the parable of the ten minus, and how that one is often misunderstood. So it's really important then we take our time going through each parable so we uncover the truth 
that Jesus originally intended for his listeners so that we can uncover that truth for us today. As Solomon like, uh, rightly said, there's nothing new under the sun. The spiritual truth they need to hear is the spiritual truth we need to hear because humans haven't changed um, for thousands of years. So we're going to take the approach we always do before we enter into any sermon. We're going to uncover the context. Notice in verse 1, Luke records this. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. The key there is on the same occasion. Clearly, there's something going on then, at that moment, that had been going on for a while. So we have to uncover what the occasion was. Well, the occasion starts all the way back in chapter 11 and goes all the way through chapter 12. Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem because the time for his crucifixion was near. While he was traveling, though, uh, he attracted massive crowds, massive crowds that gathered to hear him speak and, perform, and see him perform miracles. Uh, in 12 verse 1, it says that the crowds were so big that they were stepping on one another because they were in the thousands, in the thousands. Now, Jesus was, wasn't like a, a typical uh, um, person in terms of like a, maybe like a rock star who loves big crowds because uh, who are there to really support him. He understood that these weren't, people weren't here for the right reasons. They weren't there for the right reasons. He knew they weren't right with God and they were following him with wrong motives. So Jesus wanted to use this opportunity to really challenge their spiritual condition. And he did so in many ways and in various ways. But he told them this, really. This was his main message through this whole chapter. Unless you repent, unless you repent and embrace me as the Messiah, God is going to judge you. That was his message throughout the entire chapter. Now, the climax of his teaching is found in, start, begins in, in verse 54 through 59, just before our parable here. Jesus holds nothing back in verse 56. He calls these men and women hypocrites. And he challenges them also in their lack of discernment. These people in 54 through 56 were wise enough to predict the forecast of the weather based on the signs they could read in the sky, but they weren't wise enough to recognize that it, what it meant for Jesus to be in their midst. So he calls them hypocrites. The icing of the cake, though, comes in 57 through 59. Here he gives an illustration of a guilty man on the way to court to stand trial before a judge. And the key in these verses is that this man is guilty. He knows it. Everyone knows it. The judge knows it. There's no acquittal. There's no option for an acquittal for this guy. He's, he's guilty and everyone knows it. And so the, the counsel from Jesus is this in verse 2. Or sorry, in verse 2. Uh, in the illustration, he says this in 58. For while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate or the judge, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge. And the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. So Jesus' point in telling this is to say to the crowds, listen, if you're guilty, if you're guilty before the judge, do everything in your power to settle that dispute with the person who's accused you before you actually arrive to trial. Because once you arrive to trial, it's too late. The judgment's already going to be, the verdict's in, you're guilty. So do everything you can to settle that before you get actually to the court appearance. And again, the illustration, of course, is directed towards the crowds, saying this, you better settle your account with God by repenting and embracing me as your Messiah before you ever die. 
Because by the time that happens, it's too late. You're going to be judged because you are, like this man in this illustration, guilty. There's no acquittal for you once it comes to that point. So this is the occasion in verse 1 that Luke was speaking about. <coughs> now, the crowds clearly had judgment on their mind because they bring up an interesting historical event with Jesus. They've heard him speak about God's judgment, and so they want his take on a certain event in Israel's history that if you were living back then would have made the front page news of the newspaper. They come to Jesus and say this, there were, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Luke really doesn't give us a lot of details here, but let, let, let's just see if we can understand what's, what, what he's, they're talking about based on what we do have in front of us. There, were only, there was only one place in, in Israel where sacrifices took place. That was the temple. The temple was located in Jerusalem. We also know that uh, uh, these sacrifices would take place during the feasts and festivals prescribed by God in in the Old Testament. And we know that people would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem from all over the land to participate in them according to the Mosaic Law. So these Galileans have clearly traveled to Jerusalem. So I suggest that a feast and festival is going on They're in the temple and they're doing the sacrifices. During their sacrifices, Pilate shows up, who's the governor of Judea at the time, uh, the emperor's sort of right-hand man. And this guy, Pilate is known for being a ruthless man and a cunning man. Clearly, he must have sent soldiers to the temple to to execute these Galileans right in the middle of their offerings. Now remember that at the time of these feasts and festivals, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people would pour into the temple to offer sacrifices. Thousands upon thousands of animals would have been sacrificed throughout the week of these festivals. If you were around the altar, it would have been a bloodbath. Just a constant waterfall of blood pouring day in, day out, night in, night out. Just constant blood flow. Always going, going, going with the foul. Someone I heard say there's, they estimated 250,000 animals slaughtered in a week. That was the estimation. And just imagine that, the blood. So Luke records here that there was a mixing of the Galileans' blood with the sacrificial blood. So this was a horrific event. Pilate slaughters all these men and potentially women too. Well, actually, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, regardless, he slaughters these Galileans, right? And their blood is pouring out and mixing with the blood from the altar that's pouring out. And it's a mix-up, total mix-up. It would have been a horrific event to see. Now the crowds had not asked Jesus a question at this point. They just came to report to him about this event. Notice that in verse 1. Just simply reported. But Jesus, based on his response, from his response, we know that they had already made up their minds as to why this tragedy had happened to these particular Galileans. So they hadn't asked Jesus a question, but Jesus answers with a question, which means he knows what they're already thinking about what happened at this event. And he says this in verse 2, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they, su- they suffered this fate? This, of course, is a rhetorical question. If you were part of that crowd, they would have said, yes, we do believe that, Jesus. We totally believe that's what happened to them. See, these Jews believed 
that this tragedy happened to them because they had brought this on themselves. In other words, the disaster befell them because they deserved it. They were worse sinners than other people, and so this was God's way of taking out judgment on them. This was fate, so to speak. Now, you might think that's pretty harsh theology to, to think that way. Well, do you know what? This, this theology was not only common amongst the crowds who were unbelievers at this point. Um, this is common amongst the disciples as well. This is Jewish common thought. The Jews thought this way. Do you remember John chapter 9? Jesus is coming out of the temple with his disciples. He's coming out of the temple with his disciples. And they see a blind man. And the disciples say to him, um, as he was passing by, they say, uh, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind? This man or his parents? <laughs> Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. So the crowds and Jew the, 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 the Jewish common thought was, if, if tragedy befalls you, you must have done something to tick God off. Or you must be a worse sinner than someone else. And there was this comparison game. Because disaster doesn't befall a moral upright person. It only befalls the wicked, wicked people out there. This is why Jesus' answer is so important in verse 3. He says, I tell you, no. I tell you, no. That's not how God thinks. That's not how the world operates. To illustrate his point even further, he gives another example that the crowds didn't bring up. This is Jesus adding to what these crowds already believed. In verse 4, he says, Or do you suppose that these 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? Now, this place of Siloam was a, was a pool of water built by King Hezekiah in the 8th century BC. He built it because he worried that if Jerusalem ever come under siege from another nation, that there'd be no water supply to the temple. Because military tactics were often to cut off a water supply to the city, and you would, you would basically like starve and, and uh, the people out of their, their, their cities and whatnot. No water means quick death. So this pool that was built by Hezekiah uh, was fed by a tunnel, also built by him, that came from a spring outside the temple walls, that brought water inside the city. So this, uh, where the spring fed into the pool was called Siloam. So inhabitants of the city could go and draw water from there in case they ever needed some. And this is of course where Jesus told the blind man to wash. He, he, remember he spits on the ground and he, makes, he puts mud, he takes mud in his spit and he makes a paste. He puts it on the guy's eyes. And he says, you go to the pool of Siloam, and I want you to wash there. And so the guy does. He washes his eyes with the water from the pool of Siloam, and he can see. So there's some pretty famous things about that place. Now, perhaps there were repairs going on to this area with the water duct and the pool and whatnot. Because Luke records that a tower was there and collapsed on the people. Perhaps, think maybe, maybe tower is more like scaffolding or something like that. But regardless, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that this, this structure collapsed, crushing 18 people in the vicinity. And I think it's important here that uh, Jesus says Jerusalem, people from Jerusalem, not Galileans. Right? Because just in case a Jerusalemite thought that they were better than a Galilean, it's cool for him to say, do you suppose that these Jerusalemites are better than other Jerusalemites because of that? 
So he kind of ups the ante in sort of like the spiritual virtue there. And again, his answer is so important. His answer is so important. He says in verse 4, I tell you, no. That's not why this happened to them. It has nothing to do with their sense of morality or, uh, or anything like God. God had nothing to do with this. This was just, this is just what happened. This tragedy was just what happened. See, the problem was these crowds were making a comparison between themselves and others in terms of who had suffered tragic death. And they thought because they were alive and still around to see the day, they were on higher moral ground than others and were in better standing with God than others. They had a better than approach when they looked at other people. And so Jesus' answer is so powerful because he says, you think you're in God's good books because you're still alive and have lived to see this day? You're in for a rude awakening, he says. Because he says in verse 3 and in verse 5, unless you repent you will likewise perish. Unless you repent, you're going to end up in the same boat as these people who died. You're going to lose your life. And again, don't miss, uh, well, perish here is not the loss of physical life. Perish in the Old Testament in this context is to do with spiritual life. So if you don't repent, you will lose, you'll be separated from God for eternity. It's a spiritual uh, a spiritual death you're going to experience. Now there's an important observation I don't want you to miss from this text, and that's the word all. All. It occurs in verse 2. It occurs in verse 3. It occurs in verse 4. And it occurs in verse 5. So Jesus recognizes that the need for repentance is a, is a universal condition. It's not only required for a select few, so it wasn't only true for those in the crowds, it was, it was like a select few in the crowds, it was true for everyone in the crowds, and likewise is true for all of us as well. None of us, according to Jesus here, have a moral track record that would alleviate the need for God to judge us. All of us without repentance would perish. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a woman in the gym about three years ago. Uh, we were, I don't know how the, I know, I was talking to someone else about spiritual things and she interrupted our conversation and kind of butted in and she started talking about her moral goodness before God and how God was going to accept her no matter what. And I just asked her a simple question, which I do with a lot of people in my evangelism and I stole this from Dan Jansen years ago, so he gets credit, but he basically says, you know, he gives the illustration of if I was to put your movie up on a movie, or your life up on a movie screen, would, and invited all your friends and family over and said, I'm going to hit play from the age of five till now. Would you want that? So would you hit the play button? Everything you've ever thought and ever done. I'm going to invite everybody you know over. I'm going to hit play. Would you hit that button? Not a single person in their life has ever said yes to that question, by the way, until that day in the gym. I thought I was going to get her, and she shocked me. She said, yes, I would hit that button. I was like, okay. Lord, what do I do now? My trump card's gone. All my training has been exposed. <laughs> right? And then she said something she says interesting. She goes, the only thing I can think of that I did wrong in my life is I lied to my friend in elementary school. <laughs> and I was like, interesting. The ninth commandment, the ninth commandment 
is, you shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Right? By her own nature, by her own admission, she hadn't been perfect and didn't have a moral code. She was, in, sense, in, in essence, a liar. And if I asked her, I didn't do this, by the way, because it wasn't the right place or time. If I were to say to you, well, are you a liar? She would have had to say, yeah. What's interesting about her as well was that um, she was known to have a potty mouth. She was known for having a potty mouth. The joke in the gym was that there was a, that we're going to create a swear jar for her. And every time she swore, we're going to put money in it. And I didn't make that up. That was another secular trainer who suggested that. And if one of her favorite words was to say, Jesus Christ, a breaking of the third commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. See, it's just, it's just very interesting about these things. Anyway, again, Jesus says, all of us, all of us will perish unless we repent. The only way out, the only way to be free from judgment and not to perish is to repent. Since that's so important then, we better understand what repentance is, don't you think? What is it? Repentance has two components to it. It has an internal component and an external component. The internal component starts with a change of mind about who you are and the things you have done against God. You come to a place where you look at your past with deep remorse, deep even anger, and disgust at the choices and decisions you made that put Christ on the cross. You acknowledge that you've fallen completely short of God's standard of morality and that actually, if you're honest with yourself, you deserve to be punished. And then you acknowledge that Jesus is the only solution for that past life, for that sin. And he took it on himself to go to the cross on your behalf to bear the weight of your sins. So it comes, again, the internal part is a change of mind. It starts in the mind about who you are in relation to God your moral track record not being so good anymore that it put Jesus Christ on the cross and that he de you deserve the punishment but Christ took it on your behalf. He's the only solution. You're flat on your back going, I have nothing to offer you God in my own morality except what your son did for me. The external part then, based on the new understanding, is that the, you will then reflect your love for God and the mercy he showed you by a change in the way you live. The external part of repentance is obvious in the way you live. It's recognizable in behavior. This is so important, church, because we can often get caught up in the do you believe in Jesus type language. So you're talking to someone, well, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, okay, well, you're a Christian like me? Okay, we can get into that type of language, right? Did you know, did you know in the scriptures, there's a type of belief in Jesus that doesn't lead to eternal life, that doesn't make you right before God? that's actually demonic? Do you remember this scene <clears throat> in, in uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 7? Jesus shows up to Galilee and he's at the place of the Gerasenes and there's a man who's uh, inflicted by demons and he's, he's violent and he's always naked and he's chained up. And when Jesus shows up on the shore, he comes rushing down the hill to challenge Jesus. Listen to his words. Listen to his words, what he believes about Jesus Christ. He says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. 
Do you understand what the belief in Jesus is here? He recognizes that Jesus is deity. He recognizes that he is the son of God. He is deity. Now, that, that's automatically higher than a lot of cults. Right? A lot of the cults, he's just a man. He's just a man. He's not deity. This fellow, this demon, believes him to be deity. Second thing, he believes that Jesus has the right to judge him. He believes that he's, he understands his submission underneath Christ's authority and that he has nothing, he's powerless against him. He says, do not torment me. In other words, don't, like, don't do anything. And then they have a conversation. He says, can you please throw us into the pigs? Like, don't put us into the judgment, into the pits of hell and lock us up. At least let us live longer in terms of our freedom and put us in the pigs and Jesus agrees. This is why James 2 verse 19 says, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe and even shudder like they shake knowing that. Belief in Jesus is a start, but that is not what gives you eternal life. According to this, repentance does. Repentance, it's marked by the way you live. It is obvious in the way you live. An incredible scene is in Luke chapter 3. Just to understand what repentance looks like and get it solidified in your head. Look at Luke chapter 3 with me. Just turn there, please. Since we're already in Luke, it should be easy. This is John the Baptist, and he's baptizing people before Jesus starts his ministry. So he's, he's ahead of Christ in terms of uh, getting active in ministry. And uh, the crowds are gathering, and they want to be baptized by Jesus. Again, we believe the things you're saying. There's a belief, total belief, John, in what you're saying. The Messiah is coming. We want to get ready. We believe that there is only one God. We believe there's only one of God's sons. We don't believe in all the, rich, the Roman belief systems out there and all this type of stuff. Like we believe, we're not into pig, we're not pagan, we're not idolatrous. We believe in the one God and His only Son, and they want to get baptized. And look what John says in verse 7. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now watch this. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, fruit is a fancy Christian word, right? So let's get down to the, 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 like the ground level and talk about what that means. Take away the word fruit. He, he's saying, I want you to live a life that shows that you've repented. I want to see this demonstrated in your action. The crowds knew exactly what he meant. Because look in verse 10. The crowds are questioning him, saying then, what shall we do? Not what shall we believe, what shall we do? They understood that there was a way to live now that reflected a life with God. And so he answers, he says to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him the one who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. In other words, Stop living a life of selfishness and start being generous. Verse 12, And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more money than what you have been ordered to do. Again, why? These men were known for fraud. He's saying, Stop being fraudulent, stop lying about your business practices, and stop being greedy and focused on money. Stop doing that. Verse 13, 
Sorry, verse 14. Some soldiers are questioning him, what, shall, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anybody falsely and be content with your wages. The answer? Stop being a bully. Stop lying. And stop griping. Don't be a complainer. Be content. Pretty straightforward. Both the John the Baptist and the people understood that the repentance meant a change in the way you live. So why don't people repent then? Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't we? <laughs> Thankfully, the scriptures answer that for us and I don't have to. John 3.20 For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to repent because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. In other words, people don't want to repent because they don't want to have to admit they're wrong. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to come place to a place of humility where they have to say, God, I've done so many things against you. And I'm not, I know the world teaches me that I'm, a val- I'm so good and I'm so valuable. And you're teaching me that I'm putting the wrong place in my value and what I've done in my life hasn't been that great to the point you had to die for me. We don't want our junk exposed. We just don't want to have everything out on the table. Again, Dan told me like, like years ago, he said, Andrew, in all my evangelism with people, I have so much good conversation, but every time that I lose a relationship or people walk out of me is when I bring them to a place where they have to confess their sin before God. And then they change the subject, leave the room, or that's the end of the phone calls, whatever, because people don't want to come to that place. They like the idea of Jesus. They want to believe in Jesus. But when it comes to repenting and admitting they're wrong, they will not go there. And I, as I, I told the boys yesterday, I might use them as an illustration. I got, God was gracious in his timing for me for this. So here's a great example. And uh, the boys are great. JC, you know, I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> the boys, um, I told them to, to listen to me. They were a bit slow to hear, so there was a consequence. I told them to listen to me again. They were slow to listen to me. Again, there was a consequence. We wasted a lot of the morning in, in disciplinary action. Then I said to them at the end, I said, I forgive you, we can move on. All you have to do is just like, tell me what you know that you did wrong so we can move forward. And it's like they forgot the English language. It was like, <laughs> and I'm like, say that again? And then one of the boys goes, well, I've already told you. And I said, that doesn't count. I said, say it again. And these guys, you know how loud they are. They, when they want something or they're excited about something, they tell you and the whole world can hear. When it came to confessing their sin against dad, <laughs> and I was like, you know, they don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit it. And we're in a perfectly loving relationship. <laughs> it's hard to admit we're wrong. We don't want our deeds exposed. We hate it. But that's exactly the place that we need to come to. It's a necessity when it comes to Jesus Christ because he took those sins on the cross unjustly. He deserves to hear what we've done, that we recognize what we put him on the cross. So that's why repentance, repentance must be reflected in the way we live. If he died for those sins, surely we can honor him by the way we live moving forward.
by changing the way we live in response to him. All right. Long, long uh, time to get into the parable, but you have to understand the depth of this before you understand the parable. Let's do the parable. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. And why doesn't it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let alone, sir, for this year or two, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. There are four observations I want you to note from this parable. Number one, there's an expectation. There's an expectation by the vineyard owner that this fig tree would bear fruit. Did you catch that in verse 6? A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. He came looking for it to see if there's fruit on it, and it did not have any. Fig trees in Israel apparent, um, were, are beautiful. Um, they're, 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 so they're a thing of beauty. They're great for drawing, taking pictures of, and drawing, uh, you know, doing artwork for. Uh, they're amazing at giving you shade. Uh, birds nest in them. So they have lots of different functions. But here, Jesus emphasizes the expectation of being a fruit-bearing tree. That's what he wants you to pick up in the parable. Not that they're great for shade, not that they're great for birds. He wants you to recognize that these were meant for fruit bearing and this guy kept coming back and there wasn't any there. And verse 7 actually tells you there's a big issue with this tree. This tree hadn't produced a single crop for three years. He came back, he came back always looking at it for three years and found no fruit, fruit on it. But there was an expectation that there should have been some. Second observation is the character of the vineyard owner. First of all, this character of the vineyard owner was this man was patient and merciful. I did some research. For a normal mature fig tree, they can produce one to two crops a year for decades. One to two crops a year for decades. I know, uh, Ian, you're into farming right now. You can probably appreciate a good crop, <laughs> right? Imagine if your crops didn't produce for three years, how frustrating you'd, frustrating you'd be with it, right? You'd want to get rid of it, burn the whole patch up, right? <coughs> Notice this, this man has come for three years looking for figs. For three years, not any. He doesn't get rid of the tree right away. He keeps being patient, merciful. He could have cut it down after the first year. It's supposed to produce every year. One to do crops has done nothing. He could have cut it down. He doesn't. He keeps it alive. Three years. And when the vineyard keeper asked him, when he finally came to this, the place where he wanted to, to cut it down, when he goes to the vineyard keeper in verse 8 and, and, and tells him he wants to cut it down, the vineyard keeper says, just can you please hold off, sir? Um, don't cut this tree down. Let me basically uh, go to task and try to, main, to, to revive this thing. And based on the lack of response in verse 8 from the vineyard uh, owner, he doesn't say, no, I'm done with this tree. I'm cutting it down. From, from the way the parable is written, he allows it to continue. He allows it to continue. So this man is patient, not only because he doesn't cut the tree down in the first year, he allows it to go for three and secondly, he seems to agree to the vineyard owner's uh, request to continue to give it life. 
But this, vineyard, this man is also a judge. He's a judge. He's the one that owns the vineyard in verse 6. He's the owner. The tree is his. He, makes, he calls the shots as whether it should be cut down or its life should be preserved. He's the, he's, the one who, he's the one in the parable that does this. And he bases everything off of productivity, fruitfulness. If you're fruitful, you will be, you will be, you will, life will go on for decades. If you're unfruitful, you'll be cut off out of the garden. So he's both patient and merciful, but he's also a judge. And everything is based off of fruitfulness. Everything. I.e. repentance. How about the role of the vineyard keeper? The vineyard keeper intercedes on behalf of the tree. Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. I'm going to intercede for the fig tree. I'm going to make sure that this life can be preserved as long as possible so, that, so it doesn't have to get cut down. Give it a chance, Mr. Vineyard, keep, vineyard owner. Give him a chance. I know he deserves to be cut down. This fig tree is producing nothing, but give him a chance. Let me intercede for this tree. And finally, the responsibility of the fig tree. Notice that the onus is on the tree to bear fruit, not on the vineyard keeper or the vineyard owner. Very important. Look at verse 8. Sorry, verse 9. Verse 9. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. If it bears fruit next year, the vineyard owners do everything he can to, to, get, to pres preserve its life. Right? He's going to give it an extra year. He's waited three years. The vineyard keeper is doing everything he can. He says, preserve it. But he says, if this tree, after we do everything we can over here to make this thing live, if it doesn't do it, then we have to get rid of it. And they agree to those terms. I think the fig tree represents all human beings. I think the vineyard owner is God. I think the vine dresser is Jesus Christ. And the fig tree at the end, the onus being on us to turn to Jesus, to turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and to repent. But it's up to us to determine whether we're going to respond to his offer or not. By the, by the name of Green, a uh, 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 commentator I read, is going to finish my sermon today. He says this, this parable is Jesus' final note of urgency. This, is, this parable is Jesus' final note of urgency. Now is a time to repent and to live fruitful lives. So what can we learn? Like I said in every week, I want to give you the spiritual truth of each parable first because I believe that is the most important thing. And then we build side lessons off of that. This parable teaches that although God is patient and merciful, judgment is awaiting those who refuse to repent and turn to Him. Although God is patient and merciful, judgment is awaiting those to refuse, those who refuse to repent and turn to Him. People will perish unless they repent. And I was just thinking about this. This verse came to me yesterday, and we read it just about oh, maybe two, three months ago. 
This, this verse in 2 Peter summarizes everything this parable is saying. Listen to this. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but is patient towards you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It makes sense that Peter uses those words, doesn't it? He heard this parable that day. He was there. Point then, if this is the truth, is that according to the universal condition of the four alls, right? Two, three, four, and five all have the word all there. Jesus' assumption then is that all people to be right with God need to repent. Which means that everyone is in the wrong. Everyone has a movie screen, a movie that they can't hit play to. Only Jesus can take care of the movie. He can turn that rated R movie into a, into a general family show. Second lesson, these are, so genuine repentance has both an internal and external component to it. A mind shift and a behavioral shift. If you just change your mind about, if, you, if all you do is believe, if it's just a mind thing, you just change your mind about who believe, Jesus says, you're not a believer yet. Just believing that Jesus died on the cross and believing you forgive your sins doesn't make you a Christian. Why? Because that's exactly what the demons believed. <laughs> we believe that you are judge, Jesus. We believe that you are the son of God, Jesus. We believe that you're deity. We believe that we're in submission to you. They are not right with God. Likewise, if you just change your behavior without understanding what Christ did, you're not a Christian either. That's a Pharisee. Living the law, living the law, living the law. Hearts are far from God. Lots of people try to clean up their lives. Why do you think self-help books are so good? Lots of people can swear less. They can be just a little bit less selfish here and there. Uh, they can stop like, looking at pornography. They can control their anger to some degree. None of it matters. They can cha people change their behavior all the time. For, and the testimony for testimony. Someone, you know, I, I changed, I used to do this and now I do this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You don't understand what Christ did for you. This is why repentance has to have two components to it. What God is looking for in our minds is that we own our wrongs, we're disgusted by our past, and we recognize that He took care of it for us and He had to die in our place. And then as a love expression, our behavior changes. We are repulsed by the behavior that put Christ on the cross. We're repulsed by it, and so we're, we just have just huge desire to serve Him by living differently. That's genuine repentance. Finally, I just added this. This is like the least important of the thing. But tragedies that fall on people, sorry, tragedies fall on people that have nothing to do with God's direct involvement or one's moral standing. Back to verses one to five, right? Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners? The answer for them was, I did think so. Yep, they were. Jesus says, I tell you, no, that's wrong thinking. Do you think the people that the tower fell on in Siloam were worse sinners than others? I tell you, no, that's worse thinking. Why does this matter? Because sometimes this belief does permeate the Christian circles as well. It does. 
The reason that happened to them, I know why, because they're, they're so sinful, so sinful, right? Do you remember the High River Flood? I know I've used this example before, but when the High River Flood happened, Christians came to me and says, I know what happened there. God was judging High River for their sinfulness. The problem was Christians got affected too. So how do we account for that? Well, we, never, we live in a broken world marked by sin and tragedy. God allows us to bump shoulders with evil and, and unfortunate things. He never makes any promises in Scripture we're going to be free from those tragedies. Christians get cancer. They die. Christians uh, lose their babies when they're young. Right? right? Uh, Christians uh, get in car accidents. Christians have all sorts of tragedies that come their way. And sometimes we think, why did God do this to me? He didn't do it to you. He didn't do it to us. It's unfortunate, but sometimes that thinking can get creeped into our heads too. This is why Jesus' message is so important. He's saying this, since we live in a broken world and we don't know when we're going to die, that's why repentance is so key. Because of a type of calamity that does matter that you can't get away from. And that calamity can, you can be freed from. You, don't, you can have eternal life no matter what tragedy hits you in this life. But God's not a part of every tragedy. Every tsunami and earthquake and tragedy that hits someone's life, God's, God is, uh, sees these things happening, but He's not the cause of all these things happening. Unless specifically He tells us and states it to us. So some places in the Old Testament, we do see things, but God tells them straight up, I'm doing this because. But things happen in this world, like the tower falling in this Babylonian, or so tower falling in Jerusalem, and the Pilate's execution of Galileans that had nothing to do with moral compass. Okay, I've said a lot, and uh, hopefully have generated enough interest to have a, a, a deep a dialogue. So let's uh, have a time together.